Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. By the time she was 20 years old, Kylie Minogue was an international phenomenon. She was also, it turns out, on the cusp of overhauling everything. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. G'day, Zara McDonald. Hello, Michelle Andrews. I know I say this about every episode, but this is so far one of my favourite series we've done. Yeah, absolutely. I think because we never really appreciated Kylie in the moment, like when she was so big across the globe, we were just little kids. We really didn't wrangle with any of her star power at the time. So to look back on it now is such a delight. Yeah, 100%. Let's have a quick chat about what we spoke about in the last episode because, as you say, there was so much there that I just didn't know. But again, and as we touched on last episode, how were we to know when a lot of this was happening before we were born? I think one of the most striking things for me about the early years of Kylie's career is how quickly it took off. I had no sense that it was within a year or two of her being on Neighbours that she was our biggest star and she was dating Jason Donovan at the same time secretly. Yeah, absolutely. I also didn't have enough of an appreciation for how massive that Neighbours wedding was. I mean, yeah. we talked about it last step. It was on the cover of Time magazine here in Australia. It was watched by over 20 million people in the UK. It is still our biggest soap episode to date here in Australia. And then, of course, Zara, we spoke about how Kylie transitioned into the pop industry and had extreme success there too. Yeah, but also a lot of naysayers as she went along. Like she had a lot of people who didn't find her particularly credible, who didn't find her particularly good at what she was doing they found a lot of the music quite grating which I guess I didn't realize with hindsight because when you look back on a career not that she's even finished yet but when you look back on her career so far I would have just thought that everything would have been success after success but no she definitely had her critics so I guess our job today Mish is to sort out maybe 
the next part of this equation, which is how did she go from the most famous star in Australia to international icon selling more than 80 million albums and someone who was one half of what was one of the biggest couples of that time, which was her and Michael Hutchins. Yeah, I cannot wait to delve back into this. Guys, to do all of that, we are rewinding back It might seem a little non-chronological because we need to go back to Michael Hutchinson's childhood, Zara, to give some context on who the hell he was. Alrighty, Mish, so it's 1977 and as you said, before we can even talk about Kylie and Michael meeting, we really need to delve into who Michael was by the time that they had met. So even if you haven't heard of Michael Hutchins, which... I'm banking on the fact most of our listeners have heard of Michael Hutchins. You have almost definitely heard of the band in excess. Yeah, exactly right. Now, Michael was eight years older than Kylie. He actually grew up between Australia and Hong Kong before his family returned to Sydney for good when he was 12 years old. Now, you might be thinking, how the hell did he get into music? Well, in 1977, when he was turning 17 years old, he met a guy called Andrew Farris. Now, he and Andrew formed a band with Andrew's younger brother. They called it the Farris Brothers. And then eventually, Zara, that was rebranded to become In Excess. Yeah, exactly. Now, the band really quickly gained a reputation as one of the country's best live acts, and they constantly toured during 1981, which is when they're all about 21, or when Michael Hutchins is 21, I should say, which is really young. They released their single, The Original Sin, in 1984, and it became their first number one. So still in his sort of early-ish 20s when this all really starts taking off. Yeah, by the end of 1986, things had well and truly rocketed into the sky because In Excess sold out London's famous Albert Hall. They had also done two appearances supporting the iconic band Queen at Wembley Stadium and had their performance at the Australian Live Aid concert beamed across the world. By this point in time, 1986, Michael Hutchins had really solidified a reputation for being this enigmatic rock singer and really quintessential bad boy. Yeah, exactly. I find it really interesting because the Encyclopedia of Australian Rock and Pop, and so you know these guys, the Encyclopedia of Rock and Pop, (laughs) know what they're talking about, wrote... Indeed, Hutchins was the archetypal rock showman. He exuded an overtly sexual macho cool with his flowing locks and life and exuberant stage movements. Having grown up in Hong Kong, California and Sydney, Hutchins came to epitomise the globetrotting superstar rock singer with all the attendant trappings of international fame. Now, perhaps it all goes without saying this, but if Kylie was adored, then so too was Michael. He was like so sexy, (laughs) intimidatingly so. He was actually named Countdown Magazine's Sexiest Man of 1986. And I think when you watch interviews with him, you can really see why, right? Like a thousand percent. We watched this interview with him from 1986. It was with a publication at the time called The Tube, which was like a UK music TV program. And oh my God, like the way he looked at the interviewer, who ended up being his future partner, Paula Yates, spoiler alert, but the way he looked at her and would smile at her and have this like cheeky grin, he almost made me feel like a schoolgirl. And this was like decades ago and I was not even in the room. It was pretty remarkable to watch because there was a couple of things that I was thinking as I was watching this. Firstly, I feel like, and I've thought this as I watched old Kylie Minogue interviews too, is that media training 
wasn't quite what it is today. Yes. You know, these superstars like Michael Hutchins, particularly in this interview, give spectacularly clipped answers. They don't have a lot of like presence in terms of charisma, but he had like a lot of quiet confidence and sexiness. I don't know if that sort of, you know, explanation makes sense, but he wasn't the life of the room. He didn't light up this television screen. He was a bit sort of demure almost. Yeah, if you'll allow me, yes. I'm going to call it quietly cheeky. Yes. Like he's cheeky but in a subdued way. Yeah, and he was playing with his fingers and his tongue. I know that sounds so weird. And his <laughs> eyes, like he would look down the barrel of the camera and down at Paulie 8. So it's a remarkable thing to watch. Why don't we put a link in our show notes as well if people want to watch that after they listen because it's really interesting to get insight into how he was anyway. And I think the other thing that's really interesting, Mish, is now reading other journalists' perception of who he was and what he was saying around this time. Yeah, so we found this old interview he did with journalist Dylan Jones, where Michael Hutchins said, I must be one of the most effeminate singers in Australia and it caused us problems in the early days. Well, I don't know, mate, it's what they do overseas in it. But Australian culture is so odd that people got intrigued. We became a curiosity. I love that quote because I think it's probably very true. Australian culture and Australian masculinity culture is very narrow. And then suddenly you've got this guy like Michael Hutchins on the scene who is very effeminate and very expressive and sexy and everyone loves him. And so people were very intrigued by this band. Now, I guess we include that particularly, Mish, because this is the guy. This is who he is. This is what his brand is. This is what he's known for when he meets Kylie, who we came to know as... The Mechanic on Neighbours. The Mechanic on Neighbours, everyone's sweetheart. Now, Kylie actually first met Michael back in 1987. They were at the Countdown Music Awards in Sydney. She was invited to the show following the success of her first single, Locomotion. And she actually recalled being totally starstruck at that ceremony. She said, I was worried that a lot of the famous big-time rock music people would look down on me as just a soapy star moving in on their area and zooming up the chart. But they were all really nice. She added, Michael Hutchins made an effort to come over and say hi, which was good of him. So clearly a bit of a big deal. Even then, (laughs) two years later in 1989, Kylie and Michael met again. Now, according to the biography Kylie Naked, Kylie and her boyfriend Jason went to see In Excess's Melbourne concert and they were invited back to the after show party at the band's hotel. Oh, you know where this is kind of going, don't you? (laughs) According to the biography, Michael apparently went up to her in one of their earliest meetings and said to Kylie, I want to fuck you, I want to fuck you. Now, we're not 100% sure as to whether that wording is entirely accurate because Kylie did have a similar but less intense retelling of that meeting. She spoke to a current affair in 2014 where she did admit that the chemistry between herself and Michael was palpable but said the wording was different. She said that Michael came over and said, I don't know what we should do first, have lunch or have sex. He did ask to kiss me numerous times and I did say no numerous times. Oh my goodness. Kylie and Jason, meanwhile, had grown further apart. I mean, for one, they were literally working on opposite sides of the world. Now, Jason had transitioned into music as well and was having success with his own album. 
In October 1989, when Kylie is just 21, she embarked on her first ever live tour. She arrived in Hong Kong just before the tour and discovered that Michael Hutchins was living there at the time. Only if you read Vincent Lovegrove's 1999 biography of Michael Hutchins, this story might be a little different in reality. Vincent Lovegrove reported that Michael actually traveled to Hong Kong specifically to meet up with Kylie. So we don't know exactly how they both found themselves in Hong Kong. We just know for sure they both met up in Hong Kong. Yeah, and that there are reports around that he traveled specifically to be there when she was there. Now, Kylie said that Michael was three hours late to pick her up, but that she let him take her out anyway. She said they must have stayed out talking in the streets of Hong Kong till four or five in the morning. We just hit it off amazingly well, but I wouldn't let him kiss me, which probably drove him crazy. After that, he started sending flowers and there were constant phone calls. Now, Reportedly, Michael Hutchins continued to pursue Kylie, showing up at concerts after her concerts to take her out. We also need to preface this by saying that Jason and Kylie were still together at this time. Yeah, 100%. So you've got this tension, this chemistry between Michael Hutchins and Kylie Minogue, but you also know that Kylie Minogue is in still a secretive relationship, but also weirdly enough, a high profile one, as we discussed in episode one with her neighbor's co-star, Jason Donovan. So naturally something had to give. And unfortunately for old mate Jason, he had to give. Yeah. So from Japan, Kylie called Jason, who was working in New York at the time and apparently broke up with him on the phone. Now, Jason later said in an interview with The Mirror, it was an extremely painful parting of ways and without a doubt, I took a long time to recover from it. Years, definitely. It was bad enough that she'd run off with anybody, but she happened to run into the arms of the greatest rock god of the period, the very guy who I secretly wanted to be. That was a pretty big punch to take. It is so rough. He later told Piers Morgan on this, it's a difficult thing to be dropped by a woman, but not only a woman, but someone of her status. But you move on. I never went to an in excess concert after that. The quotes never stopped over the years as well. Not that he was like really prolific about talking about this, but I guess there's been so much time that's passed that naturally there's been some pretty iconic interviews about this with Jason. Mm. He also told The Guardian... I looked at someone like Michael and said, I wish I was you. In hindsight, that all doesn't matter, but the kid in me had to crash the car to be able to realise what I want and what I don't want. So interesting. It was really hard though. Like, can you imagine trying to crack into an industry, being desperate to crack into that industry and then having the love of your life run away with the most talented, famous, revered person in that industry? Yeah, well, I don't even think it has to be the love of his life because who knows, maybe he doesn't consider Kylie that way. But it is his first love and I think a first love running off with the guy you kind of want to be, the guy you're trying to emulate, would just completely crush you, particularly given this would have been such a public story. Like it's not just involving you. It's not just them leaving you for another guy. It's all the eyes of all the people who watch Neighbours or listen to Michael Hutchinson's music or read magazines. Them all being invested in this as well would just heighten all the pain. Yeah, well, and I think when I say love of your life, the your first love feels like the love of your life, I think, yeah. for so many people. So it would be incredibly devastating Now, when Kylie finished her overseas tour, 
She and Michael actually returned to Australia in November 1989. Now, keep in mind for timeline's sake, it was only about a month or so after she had that first meeting with Michael in Hong Kong, which means it was pretty fresh out of the breakup with Jason as well. Soon after arriving back in Sydney, she told the press, yes, I've seen Michael. We've been out on a couple of dates. He's kind of different from what people would expect him to be like. For instance, I'm sure people would look at me and think I'm just two-dimensional and you can't imagine what it would be like to get beyond that. And Michael, he's really impressive. He's really, like, deep sometimes. Yeah. To make matters even that little bit more awkward publicly, Kylie and Jason Donovan had chart-topping singles in 1990 that almost perfectly reflected their real-life realities. As Sean Smith described in his biography, it is a cruel irony that Jason Donovan enjoyed his first solo number one that year with too many broken hearts. Kylie, too, had a chart-topper, Hand on Your Heart, which was a plea to a lover to confess that their relationship is really over. Pop music, so often accused of being shallow, can sometimes provide a poignant commentary on people's real lives. I love that little anecdote because it's true. People were watching on to see how they were responding to this and whether or not those songs were actually, you know, written by them and even reflecting their real life realities. It was awkward. Mm. Now, Almost immediately as Kylie started dating Michael, people started to talk about how Australia's rock and roll bad boy was changing, quote unquote, changing Kylie. And I mean, to give people, I say the people in inverted commas, you know, (laughs) the world credit, the reason that they kind of argued this was because Michael himself was once quoted saying that his favourite pastime wasn't, I quote, corrupting Kylie. Yeah, and he wasn't the only one who alluded to this kind of change that was going on within Kylie while she was dating Michael Hutchins because Kylie herself spoke to the media and described Michael as a dark bad boy and herself and I quote as the pure good girl so they to some degree pushed this narrative forward yeah I think they certainly lend into it and it's such an interesting one for people to say that Kylie was you know quote-unquote changing because she was like in her early 20s at this point like every Mm person in their early 20s evolves and changes and becomes more adult. It was just that she was doing it very publicly. One of the most wild rumours about their (laughs) relationship was that Kylie and Michael joined the Mile High Club under a blanket on a Qantas flight. Now, apparently, to make matters even funnier, Australia's Prime Minister at the time, Bob Hawke, was sitting a few rows away. And witness the moment is the way the rumour goes. Yeah, Part of me is like maybe he was just a few rows away and could just turn a blind eye. (laughs) I don't know. I think stories like this are more believable when you consider the fact this would all be happening in first class. This isn't happening in economy where there's no room to move and how could you possibly have sex with someone in a seat? If you're in first class and Bob Hawke is just a few seats away, there's ample room, there's ample time, you have the flexibility to be able to do that. So I don't know, we needed to include this story because it's so wild and so crazy and it is reported quite widely. Yes, though it's never been confirmed, but you're so right because... It's funny the mindset that you sit in when you hear these stories because I did imagine it in economy, so I guess we needed a rich person's mindset for this story. Now, around this time, a photographer actually snapped them while they spent time together at Centennial Park in Sydney. And the next thing that they knew, Australia's Woman's Day had published pictures of Kylie stripped down to her underwear while hugging and kissing Michael. Now, 
Naturally, pretty soon, these photos found their way to several other publications around the world, including the UK's very notorious News of the World. Yeah, so these two are having lots of fun. Let's put it that way. It is a fun-filled young romance. In an interview with A Current Affair years later, Kylie described her relationship with Michael as magical and transformative. She said to have someone like that open your eyes to many things in a rock and roll way, in a poetic way, in a lovable, humorous, amazing way. Obviously, it was a great time. Even when it was slightly on the wild side, he was always very tender with me. I was a precious little thing to him, so amongst the headiness, it was always very sweet. Dare I say, I feel like every person on this earth deserves this kind of rock and roll love affair where things are wild and fun. And yes, they always go down in flames, But boy, is it like such an experience. Do you think, I mean, knowing what we know about kind of Kylie's tightly controlled image with her manager and her family and all of those kinds of things, you'd have to imagine that these kinds of people in her team are watching or not stoked about it. Yeah, (laughs) the number of people clenching their teeth for like the few years that these two were together would rack up like a big dentist bill. I don't think everyone in Kylie's orbit was totally relaxed about this relationship. I can't imagine it. But as you say, it was clearly an incredibly formative time for her. Now, in a recent documentary about Michael Hutton's life, Kylie also said that, and I quote, sex, love, food, drugs, music, travel, books, you name it, he wanted to experience it. As his partner, I got to experience a lot of that as well. She also once explained that Michael wasn't as bad as everyone thought and I wasn't as good. She added, we met somewhere in between. A very, very interesting point. Now, As the listeners can probably guess, dating Michael Hutchins did kick off a new era for Kylie's career. And that does bring us to one of the most important elements of Kylie's life and career and probably one of the key reasons that she managed to maintain relevancy for such a long time. And that, Zara, is all in her incredible ability to reinvent herself over and over again. Yeah, exactly. And we're going to get to all of those reinventions, all of them and their specific names right after the break. Zara, before the break, you said that Kylie Minogue had names for her multiple reinventions over the years. And that is absolutely 100% right. Much like Taylor Swift, she went through different eras across her career to maintain relevancy. Those at the time and since have been referred to as Kylie's sex Kylie era, her dance Kylie era and her indie Kylie era. I think when we were going through this research, Mish, and getting this episode ready, I kind of thought that these were maybe names or taglines that had been attached to Kylie's career, maybe with hindsight. Yeah, retrospectively. Yeah, but I guess what I learned as I did my digging was like these were very conscious efforts from Kylie and her team to reposition her in the market every time she kind of maybe released a new album or went through a new iteration of herself. Like it was quite interesting given that very famous Taylor Swift quote that we've spoken about before about how women in the music industry are constantly, you know, 
rebranding. Kylie was doing this from the early years of her career. Yeah, analyst Peter Conrad wrote of this phenomenon, Kylie conscientiously worked her way through a history of female archetypes. She preened in cashmere and pearls like Grace Kelly, but she also powdered like Marilyn Monroe and flipped up her skimpy skirt like the tennis player in the Athena calendar. She pretended to be a galactic courtesan like Jane Fonda's Barbarella or messed up her hair and made herself look feral and lustful like Bardo. So that's how she kind of approached her career, Zara. And I think it would be accurate to say so far in this scandal series, we've spoken about what is now called the cute Kylie era, where she's everyone's golden girl. Everyone's in love with her. She's extremely innocent. Now from the cute Kylie era, she made the decision to enter the sex Kylie era. Exactly. And that was kind of in the early 1990s. Her music started to shift towards songs with like a harder dance-infused edge. In November 1990, she released Rhythm of Love. Now, that album included her hit single, Better the Devil You Know. She was 22 years old. And she really released her most iconic song right then and there. That is so far and away (laughs) my favourite song of Kylie's, but also almost ever. My favourite thing about this was you insisted on sitting next to me in the office watching this music video and you kept looking at me waiting for my reaction to be some like, you're right, Zara, this is iconic, best video and song ever. I've got to say, it's a great song. It's a great music video. I understand why you love it. It's not my favourite of hers. We'll get to my favourite a little later. Well, it's funny because when we watch the music video, I don't think the music video is really anything to write home about. The song is though. (laughs) But the music video, you looked at that, you watched it and you looked at me and almost at the same time, I thought she looks far more mature than 22 and you looked at me and said she looks so much younger she than 22. So young. We will put the link in the show notes of this music video because I don't think she looks 22. You don't think she looks 22, <laughs> but we kind of think that for different reasons. Now, as Entertainment Weekly later wrote, looking back on Kylie's career, Minogue's third album marked a turning point in the artist's career, a moment when she distanced herself from the bubblegum music she'd previously become known for in her first two releases. Yeah, and this was super important as well. I mean, given that Kylie so often copped flack for being the soap star who managed to carve out a pop career with no real musical talent. This era for Kylie and this music was really important in kind of imbuing her brand with legitimacy. As academic Lee Barron wrote, the shift reflected a growing sense of critical legitimacy regarding her image, whereby she transcended appearing exclusively in pop music magazines and began to grace the cover of magazine style bibles such as The Face and ID. It goes without saying as well, Better the Devil You Know went on to become one of Kylie's most successful songs ever. Yeah, exactly. And the music video that we've been talking about has also been credited with reinventing her image from Girl Next Door to Sex Symbol, because we're in the Sex Kylie era, of course. Now, the following year in 1991, Kylie changed her image even more by chopping her permed hair into this cute little pixie cut. Yeah, and it wasn't long into that year, 1991, that Kylie Minogue and Michael Hutchins ended their relationship. According to the biography Kylie Naked, Kylie discovered that Michael had been potentially fooling around with some other people while he was out touring. Kylie and Michael, for what it's worth, have never confirmed these rumours. But what we do know is that around that time, their relationship spiralled for one reason or another. Yeah, exactly. Stella Magazine actually reported years later that Michael had been having an affair with the Danish supermodel Helena Christensen. Now, 
It's really interesting, right? In Excess producer Mark Opitz told the magazine just last year that Michael was actually trying to juggle his two relationships with Kylie and Helena and had come to him for help. He told Stella this. I'd been in New York with Michael and he said, I've got this girl, Helena, coming to New York tomorrow. I've been chasing her for ages, but Kylie is coming for the weekend. Can you look after Kylie for me? I said, fuck you, Michael. That's your problem. Yeah, Kylie was apparently in Australia preparing for her rhythm of love tour when Michael rang her from New York and broke up with her on the phone. It's a bit of a full circle moment. I mean, both relationships, Kylie and Jason broke up over the phone and then Michael ends up calling Kylie to essentially do the same thing to her two years later. Although Kylie did insist on a face-to-face meeting, didn't she? Yeah, well, she told Michael Hutchins biographer later that she flew to New York so that they could talk about it. She told the biographer he was very strange at that point and I remember him being somewhere that I'd never seen him before. He was just very distressed. I don't know what he'd been taking or what he'd really been going through because he was not together. She kind of elaborated on that when she was interviewed in that documentary we mentioned about Michael's life. And she said, he was on all fours on the floor crying. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what was happening. I just knew that he was a broken man. I'd never seen any man like that before. I left pretty confounded and destroyed and knew that was it. He broke my heart. I have to confess that the hurt stayed for quite a long time. In the midst of all that heartbreak, Kylie actually started dating none other than Mm. Lenny Kravitz, which I feel like it would have been silly for us to not at least mention it. It wasn't a long relationship that she had with the iconic singer-songwriter, but they did date in mid to late 1991. And there's also actually an iconic photo of them when they were together that we will 100% be putting in that nostalgic throwback gallery on our Instagram, Zara. does make me wonder, sorry to interrupt very quickly, but because that photo is so iconic and there is a couple of really iconic photos, whether in some way this was maybe a setup to make, Ooh. I don't know, maybe not Michael Hutchins jealous, but to sort of bounce back very publicly. Yeah, that's totally fair. I think everyone really swooned over Kylie and Lenny Kravitz as well. And the funny thing is, is that Lenny Kravitz later wrote a book about his life and there was no mention of Kylie Minogue in the romance section. So who knows? Yeah, I am calling it PR relationship. That is just me. (laughs) Look, it was around this time as well that Kylie's career took a turn. In October 1991, the year that her relationship with Michael Hutchins ended, Kylie actually released her fourth album called Let's Get To It. And unfortunately for her, Zara, the album was considered a bit of a flop. It was the first of Kylie's albums not to reach the top 10 on the UK albums chart. And she later explained that she had felt stifled by her songwriters, Stock, Aitken and Waterman. She explained, I was very much a puppet in the beginning. I was blinkered by my record company. I was unable to look left or right. Makes you think a lot about whether the outside commentary of her not being very credible or legitimate in the industry was actually swallowed by both the people that were working with her and Kylie as well because Mm. no one gave her any control. So after ending things with Michael, Kylie actually went on to cut ties with her record label as well as her writers and producers, including Stock, Aitken and Waterman, who we've spoken so much about in the last two episodes. She actually signed with indie dance label Deconstruction. Now, As for why she made the decision, she told Mixmag, why not? It was the end of my contract and I didn't see that I could spend another five years with them. 
It's like leaving Neighbours when it was the number one TV show. Call me stupid, but it's something instinctive that made me leave. If I had have stayed, I wouldn't be talking to you now. Yeah, and this is when we saw Sex Kylie be wheeled out for New Kylie or Dance Kylie to be wheeled in. Kylie said of this time, one of the earliest meetings with Deconstruction about a recording I had was a decision about which direction to go in. We had two choices, to record pop songs that would sell or to experiment. Let me loose in a field and see what happens. Now, I think everyone can probably predict what the option was. They chose to let Kylie experiment and see what she could do in the indie space. Yeah, so by September 1994, Michelle, we're finally alive in this story. She released her (laughs) fifth album called Kylie Minogue. Kylie brought in some of the best dance and pop producers to collaborate on the album, but as The Independent wrote a few years later, some of Kylie's old and original fan base weren't impressed by her new record, didn't love the experimentation. Yeah, a few people, lots of people, in fact, didn't seem to love the experimentation. We know how begrudging people can be when it comes to change anyway but by the end of that year 1994 Virgin Radio was running an advertising campaign with the slogan we've done everything to improve Kylie's records we've banned them smash hits readers also voted Kylie the worst dressed person worst singer and second most very horrible thing after spiders that year now this is what I find so interesting because I think Anyone who zooms out on Kylie Minogue's life would see this incredible trajectory, both in her personal life and her career, where things are just working so well for Kylie Minogue. It's only when you zoom in that you realize this career was peppered with steps forward and steps back. Like this was not linear. This was a slog, even by her fifth album. Yeah, I think for me personally... I found that quite a relief to read, which is like an incredibly self-centered way to look at that (laughs) story. But I think as a young person watching incredibly successful people ahead of you, you're like, well, if I make even one misstep or if people hate kind of the work that I'm putting out, career's done, you know? And it's like, Mm. no, you can make mistakes and career is not over. Like it's a long legacy that you build over the course of your life doing whatever it is that you want to do. And you've got a lot of time to create that. And I think it's really good for young people to keep that in mind. Truthfully as well, I have so much more respect for the celebrities and the artists and the creatives who continue to push despite this kind of feedback, despite this public narrative. Like for you to be part of a radio station's campaign where they're pledging to the listeners that your songs will never be played, that's so humiliating and so denigrating that I have a lot of respect for the Kylie Minogue's of the world. It kind of truthfully reminds me a little bit of how people used to speak about Kim Kardashian. And I know it's different because Kim Kardashian isn't necessarily an artist, but what she managed to do in business is what Kylie managed to do two decades earlier in music. Yeah, I don't think that's the worst comparison you've ever come up with. I think women in public jobs generally have to overcome their credibility being questioned, particularly when they come up through unconventional paths. But Mish, she might have been getting slammed by the general public and by commercial radio stations. But what's really interesting about the story of Kylie Minogue is that the people who never left her side all kind of bought into the rhetoric that she was somehow finished or old news was the queer community. Yeah, that's exactly right. This is such a warming element of Kylie's career story in that at a time when everyone else was slamming her, the queer community began to wrap their arms around Kylie Minogue more than ever. She actually, in the early to mid-90s, Zara, 
began to become a bit of a queer icon, which is a status that has continued until this day. Yeah, she told Billboard magazine of this time when she sort of started learning that she was becoming a queer icon. I was in Sydney and there's a famous bar on Oxford Street called the Albury. And at the time it was the gay bar in the gay area in Sydney. I was in the car. My manager was in the car with me along with a couple of other people. And someone said, there's Kylie Knight at the Albury tonight. And I was like, what? I've never heard of Kylie Knight. But I said, we should go, we should go. Yeah, she actually performed at the Sydney Mardi Gras in 1994. Later on, when she was asked about why she had such huge support from her gay fans, she actually said, part of it is the music, part of it may have been a theory I explored, that I wasn't always given the easiest of times back then. And I wonder if part of that coming together was an understanding of not being accepted for who you are. But Mish, Kylie Minogue is so far from finished yet. While we leave her career in this episode at a a little bit of a low point, what's coming in episode three is her now iconic rebound (laughs) back to global fame and adulation. Like something probably Kylie's critics never saw coming. Perhaps something maybe Kylie didn't see coming in its intensity. Yeah, for sure. In episode three, we will be covering oh so very much from Kylie's grief over losing Michael Hutchins to her cancer battle, the great loves of her life and her sparkling career that has since made history books. I am so excited to get there and to wrap this series up. But before then, guys, before we get to all of that, you know where to find us. We are on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. And as Mish mentioned before, every Monday when these scandal episodes drop, we drop a huge gallery of nostalgic photos from the time that we covered. So get ready for some nostalgic Kylie photos. Yeah, maybe I'll make Zara do some disco dancing on our TikTok. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we haven't even plugged our TikTok yet. That's at Shameless underscore podcast. As always, guys, a big thank you to our researcher, Justine Landis-Hanley, who works on these with us. We are extremely grateful for you. We are. Every episode takes hours and it is such a privilege working on these episodes with you, Justine. So thank you. Zara, thanks for all the research as well. I've loved doing this one with you. Can't yeah. Wait three. Thanks. Right. Back at you. And one last plug before we go. Guys, if you want to help other people find the show, you can follow us on both Spotify and Apple Podcasts. It does help other people Find our show. It helps us in the charts, all of that good stuff. We would love you for it. Help us find more Kylie fans. Thank you so much, guys. We'll be back in your ears on Thursday. Bye. Bye. Bye.